there's never like a practice where I'm doing something and not going as far underwater as I can. If I'm going fast, I need to practice doing that when it's really, really hard. And so, um, it's a habit for me at this point. All right. Welcome to the social kick podcast. I'm Brian Lundquist. We got a full crew, Dr. John Mullen, Luke Paddington and world cup champ without the crown. But and Vita Nelson. What's going on, Vita? Uh, I'm nothing, just hanging out. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> What's it like to travel with them giant checks? Oh gosh. Um, well, in Berlin and Toronto, I did not travel with them. Um, the, at, in Berlin, there were a couple of us that were kind of communicating like behind the scenes about like what to do with them because this is my first world cup experience and other people have probably gotten these large prop checks before, but this is my first time. So, um, I was texting with Nick Fink. I'm like, Hey, are you going to take this with you? Like, uh, what are you going to do with it? Cause we brought him back to the hotel, which was quite the experience. I had like two of my friends walking in front and behind me. And I was like trying to keep it like as concealed as possible because we had to walk through the train station to get back to our hotel in Berlin. And I was like, I hope no one sees me with this like $10,000 USD prop check while I'm walking through the train station. Um, so yeah, I think we folded them up and like ended up just, um, cause they can fold. They're just cardboard and just like broke it down to its smallest parts and put it in the like uh, just like a in a corner in the hotel room i think <laughs> um and then in toronto um i think it might have been one of the uh fina somebody suggested that we like sign them and give them out to some of the kids in the stands which i thought was a really cool way to like uh actually utilize it in some way um those kids like would appreciate that. So, um, that was cool. We did that in Toronto. So we just like signed them and passed them up to the, there was a bunch of kids in the stand at the at that meet specifically that were like, ah, like screaming for everybody. Um, which was super fun. So we did that. The only ones I kept were from Indy. So, um, my parents came, uh, and my now fiance came, um, to, the meat and they were like, you can't give those away you have to keep them. So, um, especially the big overall check, they were like, you need to keep that. So, uh, we took those back cause I had my car in Indy. So we drove them home. Yeah. I was really? hoping that TSA would have like, um, you can't check this mom. What are you doing? TSA? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. No, in Berlin, I didn't know what to do. So I was going to fold it up and put it in my checked suitcase, like at the bottom, because I, thought, well, you know, like that's just going on the, the aircraft. I don't have to worry about TSA or anything like them questioning it for some reason, but like, it's not an actual check of any sort. Like can't take it to a bank, but, um, you know, you never know. So, uh, yeah, I think we ended up just like coordinating some of us to figure out like a plan on what to do, but I like the idea of giving it to the kids. That was cool. So. What about a trophy? Do you get to keep the trophy? And is it like the Stanley cup trophy where it goes to the tour of the world? Um, no, I think it's like individualized each World Cup circuit. They give oh. an overall cup to both female and male winners and you get to keep that permanently. So um, mm -hmm. I did get to keep the trophy. I do have it. Um, I haven't found a place to display it, what I'm going to do with it yet. But it's probably the coolest award I've gotten thus far in my career, I'd say. <laughs> the hockey players are drinking beer out of their cup. What What is your beverage of choice to drink out of the cup? Well, um, my parents were like, we have to drink out of it. Like it's a world cup trophy. Um, and the way that the cup is like designed, it has like an etching at the very top of the cup itself that like allows you to not be able to even drink out of it if you'd wanted to, because it like leaks if you tip it. Um, so we haven't tried yet because we're not really sure how, but my parents are like determined to make that happen. Um, Gosh, I could put a bunch of things in there, but they really want to drink like a beer out of it or something. So they'll they'll persist. I'm sure they'll get their way and they'll get to drink out of it, but we'll see. <laughs> Should NCAA move from those wooden trophies to like a cup for the overall team champion? Oh, yeah, that would be really cool. I think like the symbolism of a cup is so yeah. special and like you can like hoist it up a little yeah. better than like the trophies. Um, those wooden trophies are pretty cool, but like um, I think the cup 
is like yeah you walk in the house like what's that oh i'm just the best overall swimmer in the world <laughs> <in the world>. oh <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's uh definitely a really cool award um to give out and they don't have that type usually it's just medals um in swimming and not even typically trophies um mm-hmm. but the cup is really cool definitely my favorite i'd say <laughs> luke's not from the states that's why he wants these 18 year old college freshmen drinking out of cups <laughs> not familiar with the rules in the states yet yeah yeah I saw him in Canada drinking age was 18. It was fine. Oh, yeah. 21 in the States. So yeah. got to rein it a little bit. <laughs> at least we've made some progress from the days of the – you remember the trophy starts? The little figurine they put on oh, top of the trophy? Yeah. They're doing the <laughs> – Funny enough, I am at my parents' house right now in my childhood bedroom, and there are many of them yeah, staring at me across the room right now. So, yes, I am familiar with the uh, – the uh, block start trophy. That is uh, a classic for sure. Like a sailor dive setup. Yeah. <laughs> my sisters like to refer to the section of my parents' house as the shrine to Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Picture yeah. that was on the wall in my college like room. And then they've got all the trophies and everything. Do your parents have a shrine to beat up? Uh, a-, a smidge, I'd say. There's definitely a lot of it like boxed up because they repainted and redid some of their um the rooms in their house the last couple of years but they do have like a bookshelf in the corner over there with some uh medals and trophies and pictures and stuff but um we all swam so each one of our bedrooms kind of has like our own things Mm -hmm. in it which is kind of cool so these rooms aren't what they used to be when we were kids but they kind of kept like some of our memorabilia per se in each room to like pay homage to all of my sisters which is kind of cool so you said fiance earlier. Uh, yes. That title sunk in yet? Uh, no, I mean, a little more so now since I've been back in like reality for the last like, I don't know how, two weeks maybe now even. It, I, the time is all relative to me. Like I felt like I was living in an alternative universe during the World Cup circuit. Like, um, But it was a lot to take in. I was obviously still processing like a lot of what had gone on at the Indie World Cup, which was very exciting and fun for me um, and great for my confidence, my career, but then like got to share a really special moment with my parents and now the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. So it was a surprise to me. Um, I was convinced we're taking like a family trip to Hawaii in December um, for like a week over like Christmas time-ish. And I thought for sure that's when it was going to happen. Um, I knew it was coming. We'd gone shopping together. Mm-hmm. And so I had a feeling that it happened this year. But um, he got wind that I was speculating it would happen in Hawaii. So he, like, switched up his plan and surprised me, which I think it's it's good that it was a surprise because that's how it should be. You know, you don't want to be expecting it. I think it makes it even more special when you don't see it coming. So. He executed it very well. <laughs> you want to ask to see the trophy more or the ring more? Oh my gosh. I mean, the the cup is like great, but this is so much more important to me than any trophy could be for sure. Yes, he did a great job and um, I'm still getting used to wearing it. I'm a jewelry gal. Like I, mm. I wear some rings on my fingers when I swim, but I also like it kind of gets in the way sometimes I'm not yeah. as comfortable with wearing it. Cause you just take it on and off as a swimmer specifically. Yeah. Um, so I'm still getting used to it, but it's sometimes I just catch myself staring at my hand. You have to get in a routine, you know, like I always would know, take it off before I get into water where it yep. goes. Cause my fare is like, <laughs> take it off the wrong time. You lose it, right? You forget where you put it or you set it down and it doesn't yeah. have a place. So yeah, goggles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it came to like a box um, and I've kept that box and I think I'm going to um, get like a silicone ring to wear um, oh. when I can't have it on, which will be nice to like keep the habit of having the yeah. ring on itself um, for the time that I'm swimming. Um, and then I just always make sure I put it in that box yeah. because oh. as soon as I start putting it in like random places on the table or like on the chair or somewhere in the bathroom, like oh, yeah. I lose it. So, um, yeah, it is a little bit like, I wish I could have it on all the time, but just with my circumstances now, it's just, I have to take it on and off all the time every day. I can't lift with it. I can't swim with it. And that's basically like my whole day's, um, plan. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been really, really cool. We probably won't get married until, um, we'll have a pretty long engagement just waiting till, uh, the Olympic summer is done. And then after that probably be when we 
decide to get married, but Sweet. very cool. Speaking of uh, what your new routines become and putting uh, rings on and off, you, you talked about the routine that you really dialed in around recovery and um, just owning sort of the things that you need to take care of to be successful and that being indicative of mm-hmm. um, or leading to your success uh, recently. So I'm curious, like what some of that was, what, it, what have you learned about yourself as a professional and in uh, doing meets in rapid succession to set yourself up to swim, you know, fast over and over again? Yeah. You? Um, it's, it's definitely evolved over the years. Um, I think my experience in the ISL uh, previous two seasons really taught me how to like figure it out because I had to. Um, those meets were like three or four days apart from one another and like over and over and over and you're racing at a very high level. And so the World Cup was almost like a condensed version of a similar format to what ISL was, but like mm-hmm. obviously we were changing locations which was new to me, but, um, you know, I think I've just figured out what recovery modalities really work for my body when, um, trying to compete at a high level. I bring my Norma everywhere I go. Um, I swear by them. I like couldn't make it through a meet probably like a couple meets without them. So, um, I mean, I'm sure I'd be fine. Um, but I do rely on them heavily to help me get through like those long, um, back-to-back meet type format, um, racing. Um, I just have a schedule that works for me. Like I have certain nutrition that I stick to that I know like works really well with my body. Doesn't upset my stomach. Doesn't, Mm -hmm. um, like, uh, curb things. I know what type of like caffeine works for me and like what time approximately before I race, I usually would, uh, get nutrition in or get that type of stuff in my body to be prepared. Um, I have like a foam rolling and a dynamic warm up that I always stick to that really helps me as my body gets sore throughout a competition. Um, Wait, what, do you eat? what is, the, what is some of the nutrition that works when, what type of caffeine do you use? Um, I, yeah. So I used to be like a multiple cups of coffee drinker a day, like in college when I first started out, um, just to like stay alive. If I'm being honest, (laughs) my first couple years of college were really tough. Um, and so that was like my lifeline a little bit. And, um, I have had some like digestive issues in the past. I have really intense, severe acid reflux that I've dealt with for like a number of years. And so, Um, I got to a point where I was having some really chronic, um, intense stomach pain, went to a doctor, um, had like an upper GI done and they kind of said like, your stomach lining is very minimal. You need to cut back on really acidic things like Mm. caffeine and stop heavily using Mm. ibuprofen as a pain management tactic, which Mm. I had done for, you know, a number of years with a lot of like aches and pains as a athlete growing up. And so they told me to avoid those and alcohol because it's another thing that's really harsh on your stomach. And so mm-hmm. the alcohol thing wasn't really a big deal for me because like, I'm not a huge drinker as it is. Um, mm-hmm. it's just like not a part of the way that my lifestyle is or the things that like I necessarily need. Um, mm-hmm. but caffeine and ibuprofen were tough. I'm not gonna lie. So I just like stopped taking ibuprofen and, uh, tried to steer away from like uh, using medicine as a way to like cope with the pains that my body was, um, going through at the time. I think it made me more in tune and like have better body awareness anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's probably better for me in the long run as it is to just stay away from that unless like completely necessary. Um, but caffeine, uh, yeah, I just had to cut that cold Turkey. And so I found like black tea as an alternative for me. That's not as acidic, but has about the same amount of caffeine as a cup of coffee has. Um, so I'm a big chai tea advocate. I like buy a concentrate usually. Um, and if I know I can't get it overseas, I'll probably travel with it myself. Um, you can usually find it everywhere, but Mm -hmm. just to be safe. And then, um, I try and stay away from dairy as well. I think I may be a little lactose intolerant, even though I'm from Wisconsin. I I still have to be, you know, aware enough. But yeah. What do you use caffeine to race or just in the mornings to wake up? 
Um, it used to be more of a regular thing for me. I'd use it just to like drink it in the morning, um, on days that we were like going to go fast, um, to kind of replicate something. I kind of use it more as like, um, I used to use it more regularly, but now I like try and stay away from it during training so that I can have the like greatest effect for it, for it on me when I'm in competition. Um, just to like give myself a little extra pep before I have to race. Um, but I don't know. It's, that's definitely evolved. It used to be like, uh, I'd say four or five times a week I was drinking caffeine, like not for the purpose of training necessarily, but just to like have it, I guess. And I think I've leaned away from trying to be dependent on something for me to be able to like get through my day or to be successful at practice or to be successful in competition. So, um, that was kind of like the last year or so figuring out, um, that it just wasn't necessary for me to rely on something like that. Um, and so we went through a period of time where I like just didn't have it at all when I was in competition, when I was in training and now I use it just to, I don't know, it's a little bit of a habit for me during competition to have it. Um, but I also think that it's more so like once I need a little bit of extra, I know that that's something that can give it to me, but I don't necessarily need it to be successful. If that makes any sense. Um, I used to be like super superstitious about things. Like I needed to have my Jimmy John's sandwich and I needed to have like my chai tea with one shot of espresso at this time and do this. Like I, I was, and if I didn't do that, I felt like I wasn't going to be successful. I think that that evolved through college and now obviously has definitely changed as a professional for me. But, um, I think a lot of athletes have those like little things that, uh, are important to their process, but if you like get in your own way and convince yourself that if you didn't have those things that you wouldn't be able to be successful, that's when it's like a problem. Mm -hmm. So, um, I have little things that I do like to do that I feel like help me to be better prepared to be successful. But like, if I didn't have them, um, I would be fully confident I could still perform very well. So like you have to adapt in that way because, you know, you go to a foreign country, you're at a meet, you're out of your comfort zone. You don't have all the things you, you might need or want in your like comfortable environment. Um, and you have to be okay with that because if you can't adapt, like it's over, it's kind of over at that point. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Has that come with maturity of your career or do you actually also have like tools and mechanisms to keep you not worrying? Look, I just saw my 200 backstroke. I got a two IM now. It's going to be okay. Oh, this is a six race I've done in three weeks. It's going to be okay. Yeah. Like what keeps you going for a three week span? What keeps you going for these back to back events? What keeps your, you know, the pressure? Oh my gosh, I'm close to winning a lot of money. What keeps you going? Is it your career or is it tools or both? Um, I would say it's a little bit of both. I definitely mm -hmm. have tools. I know that really help me. I have different like focus points that I use, um, while moving through a competition over periods of time, um, that I think keep help me grounded and not so worried about the like more extraneous things that could come from me being successful in the pool. Um, mm -hmm. because especially in something like the world cup, it's a lot of racing. It's really hard on the body. It's a lot of travel. Um, but you just have to like take it one piece at a time. I really just approached the world cups as like one race as its own individualistic thing. And I wasn't thinking about the next race until that first race was over. So, um, like the other days it was a little easier for me to do that because it was just one swim. Um, in Berlin, I did do the 50 and the hundred I am on the first day, but you know, the 50 was kind of just like a fun swim for me to like get into the meet and kind of get the juices flowing, get into the race of competition, like see the walkout and not have pressure. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was a little easier for me. The two hundreds on the last day, I think were a lot more of like a mental hurdle for me, mm -hmm. um, at first, mm -hmm. just because you're kind of playing out, um, all these, uh, uh potential like yeah. comes in your head. Like, is it worth it for me to do both? If there's potential for me to win, is it worth trying to get the points? Mm -hmm. Will that help me in the overall standings in the end? So, um, I talked with like, well, the time change was really hard. So after prelims in the morning, I had done both and I wasn't sure if I was going to continue to do the double, like through the circuit. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I tried reaching out to people, but it was like, in the middle of the night at home. So I was kind of left to like make my own decision. Um, and as a professional, you just have to like 
try and trust your body and your intuition and what you think is best. And, um, I think just like I said before, I, I went into the two, two hundreds on every single stop and swam that tuner backstroke. Like I didn't have a tuner I am after. Um, and as soon as the tuner back was over, then I had those 30 minutes or so to prepare myself as best I could for a great tuner AM as if I hadn't already swum a tuner backstroke. So mm. a lot of it is mindset. Mm. Um, a lot of that is your choice. And, um, obviously like the physical pain is something that cannot be ignored to some degree, but like, you can also make the decision to like, give into that pain when it hurts and not allow yourself to, um, step up and have confidence or you can acknowledge it, but, you know, push past it and still step up and feel like, okay, I'm going to give it everything I have. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely maturity for me over time that's been developed. I had a harder time, I think, with those things when I was younger, just because I wasn't equipped with how to necessarily manage them the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think I have a system down in my own mind on how to tackle things like that. Um, you know, for the World Cups, I wasn't really worrying about points or money mm-hmm. until probably indie just because it was the final stop and I mm-hmm. knew that was the conclusion of things. And so I was aware of points, you know, it's on social media. I don't, I'm not somebody who completely stays off of social media um, at meets. I know I have a lot of friends and teammates who stay away from it and I completely understand and respect that. But um, part of it is a little fun, like distraction for me, not necessarily keeping up with the swimming, but like you know, still engaging with the podcasts I listen to or the things that keep me entertained like I would be at home. Um, trying not to make it feel like it's so much of this, like the, all this buildup and we're in this environment that's hyper-focused and you need to perform and you can't be distracted. Like I actually kind of think those little distractions are actually beneficial sometimes because it makes you feel some normalcy in those environments. Um, mm-hmm. So I was aware of points and the potential money. Um, and I was definitely disappointed. Like when I didn't get the triple crown in the hundred back, I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Like I'm aware that if I had won, I would have gotten some money with that, you know, but um, that wasn't driving force behind what I was doing. I think the mindset is what determines how you approach your racing. And I think you're more successful when, you have that focus on something other than like a monetary thing you're going to get at the end of it or like a trophy or praise from other people. Um, and I'm lucky enough to still love the sport of swimming. And so it makes yeah. it a little easier for me to do that, but yeah. Got it. So you finished the two back, he went and listened to social kick and then he did the 200 IM. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> Perfect. Your favorite show. Excellent. Um, I interviewed with, uh, I had an interview at World Cup with you guys, but um, yeah. (laughs) That was a secret sauce. (laughs) So joking aside, could you tell us more about kind of, I guess, what you're doing in the recovery pool between those events? And are you at that stage where, like you said, you're trying to be a little bit more flexible, um, not as superstitious as it, all right, this is my warm down, this is what I do, or is it more adjust based off of how you're feeling and what you know is ahead still? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a combo of the two for me. I, for warm up and warm down purposes, I definitely have like a plan. I have um, a set out structure of what, like the amount of yardage I typically do for both my warm up and my cool down between races. And that like is kind of a non-negotiable for me. Like regardless of if I feel great or really bad, I stick to what I think my body responds to best. Um, and so in between 200s, like the two back, when you really send a 200 backstroke, it's really tough. Um, you know, the legs are shot for me, especially I spend so much time, um, in that event, just like digging in my legs. So, um, I definitely incorporate a lot of like kicking, uh, and hypoxic work into my, like in between, um, that I have about 30 minutes ish was what ended up being at the world cups for the between, between the two hundreds. Um, but I have like, a 
I do freestyle and backstroke. Then I do some kick. Then I do some fifties pink on like a tight send off. Then I do some kick and some hypoxic work. And then I usually, if I have a little bit of time, like do some 25s of the event I'm about to do. So like actually start to get into like a race kick count, race breakout, a fly, a race kick count, race, uh, breakout of backstroke, breaststroke and freestyle just to like warm up all the strokes. Um, but yeah, I definitely have like a little bit of a system I follow. The coaches I've worked with over the years have definitely helped me figure out like what flushes the system best. Um, and I, at every World Cup stop, I was the last person in the pool um, because I would finish the tuner I am and they would pull us to do like the little presentation of awards. Um, and some athletes just warm down a couple hundred and called it a day, but I was in the pool, like swimming my complete warm down because I knew it would help me to maintain, um, my physical preparation for the next couple of weeks. So I'm very glad I did that. <laughs> um, I even warmed down after Indy, which most people were like, that's the end of the circuit. And I am going to take a little bit of time off or, um, you know, I'll let the next couple of days be a little painful without some warm down and deal with it later. But I, you know, with some encouragement from my family, they're like, you should cool down. Like, this is a good idea. Just because you're alone in the pool, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. We have a bunch of time to celebrate all of this. So it definitely was like a little bit of a whirlwind for me, but mm. sticking to my, uh, my structure, uh, really helps, uh, as I move through a meet like that. And then obviously like, as I move beyond that, um, for me, because the things I'm looking to do aren't just have haven't just been accomplished at the world cup. Like that was incredible and awesome. And it's given me a lot of confidence, but I need to keep my body prepared and healthy to continue, uh, what I'm trying to do these next couple of years. So warming down, um, after a long meet seems like such a small thing, but like, it really can kind of help you out when you get back to training environment you're already a better prepared than maybe some of your like competitors because they might not have gone through their whole process because they were like, ah, you know, it's over. So, um, and I understand that, you know, I've been caught up in that before. I'm like, ah, oh, it's over. We're done. No warm now. Woo. You know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, it's definitely like, there is some flexibility in it. I definitely listen to my body. I think that's super important. Um, like I said, body awareness and like self-awareness is important in an environment like that because, you might have a structure, but being able to like adjust that to how your body feels is also super important. But I do kind of stay not rigidly, but pretty consistently stick to that same warm up, warm down structure for me. Beta, between between the meets, you won a few athletes that went home and worked with your coaches and made adjustments. You talk about that. I don't think many swimmers realize how elite athlete, elite swimmers can make such precise changes. I mean, talking about like the angle of the recovery, the, 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 the half a foot breakout difference or what have you. Yeah. Could you give us an example of maybe one or two adjustments you and your coaches made between perhaps Berlin and Toronto or what have you? You know, was it a, a, a kick count? Was it a, a touch, a pacing or, or anything? Yeah. Yeah. Um... I went, yeah, I went home between all the stops, which at first felt like I kind of made like a rookie mistake because everyone had traveled to like from stop to stop. And I was the only one like doing a little bit of extra travel to go home, but I actually think it was really necessary for me. And I think it was kind of worth the extra travel just to like reconnect in my like home environment and reset and then go to the next. So, mm -hmm. um, I, one of the things I worked on through all the world cup stops. And each time I went home, we did a little bit of focus on this was my start. Um, it's something I've been working on pretty heavily, like the last couple of months with some of the coaches in Wisconsin, just like figuring out what's most powerful and explosive for me off the blocks. And I might not necessarily have nailed it during the world cup, but I was like working through different types of start positions, different types of things to focus on while I'm on the blocks mm -hmm. to try and help me find what's most powerful for me. So like I didn't nail that skill, but that was definitely something that like we were trial and error, trial and erroring like during mm -hmm. the world cup circuit. Um, so fine tuning those things short course now, mm -hmm. um, while I had a bunch of race opportunity was super important because that's something that's I'm going to do a start off the blocks literally every time I race, regardless of the distance. So, um, that was something I really focused on, um, in backstroke specifically, 
when I came back from Berlin, my coaches made, um, a, like pointed out to me, uh, that I was leaving my head up really long into all of my turns and my 200, especially, um, and we watch a lot of race video, um, not just my own, but other people that have mm -hmm. swum as fast as I'd like to swim just to see like, where are they gaining on the way that I'm racing and how can I fix what I'm doing technically, um, to be better. Um, and so as I moved through Toronto and Indy again, I did not perfect the skill. Um, but I definitely was much better through each stop with like, mm -hmm driving my head down into my turns as I got tired. Mm -hmm. um, mm. Breakouts as well in my backstroke. I tend to, when I get tired, I work my underwater super well, but I don't necessarily always transition that power super like gracefully onto the surface. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of like an abrupt breakout for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think I'm losing a little bit of power and speed through that. I think mm -hmm. I can very easily be under two minutes in the two back if I just like transitioned mm -hmm. my little technical things a lot better in my race. Cause like my swimming is, is where it needs to be. It's these little things that are going to make the difference between, um, breaking a barrier and sticking right where I've been. So, um, those are just a couple examples on things that we kind of worked on. Um, definitely like the small details, yeah. Getting used to short course meters because I trained short yards and long meters um, was a little bit is always a little bit kind of like a crapshoot, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and every pool is a little different. The sight lines are different. Mm -hmm. So um, we can make all these little tweaks, but each pool kind of had its own like quirks that to figure out um, while there. And we're not there for a short like a very long time. We're there for a pretty short amount of time. So um yeah, turns, details, little things that I could try and get hundreds and tenths because a lot of those races were right on my best or I was competing very closely with my competitors, like enough that those were going to be difference makers for me. So, yeah, it was a lot of detail work. I found when I focus on one thing in a race, it took my mind off the, all the million, the other things too, like the pain yeah. and issues. We're like, look, here comes a wall, here comes a wall. Look, yeah. look. And it helped. Did it help you? You know, like... Yes. Um, especially in the backstroke, um, like in the 200, I like it so much because it feels almost like, how do I describe this? Um, like methodical in a way it's like mm. this strategy that I have, like I, the kick count, um, the, to the breakout to the number of strokes I'm taking, like it almost feels like, uh, like a routine, like a routine so familiar to me that it like, I don't have to think about anything that's going on in my body or anything that's going on around me. I just have to like execute almost mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, in environments where there's high pressure and you have to perform really well, I think finding little things to focus on in your racing, um, is, so such an easy mental uh, tool to almost distract yourself from like the pain that comes along with yeah. racing really hard or like being in the moment. You just are you're executing um, mm -hmm. these few things that help you get through a race like that without um, taking away from your ability to do it well. Uh, and I in, in the college format, I definitely like experienced that as well when i would swim at ncaa's like i i didn't know where anyone else was in the race i was like counting my kicks counting my strokes like nailing my turn and i think the only times i ever saw someone was if i was like underwater hmm. on like the last turn <laughs> and so um i and think they're way behind a couple times when I would come up and I saw someone behind me, I'm like, all right, let's go. <laughs> you know, that's what you want to see. But like, honestly, I had no idea where anybody was. Like I could have told you I was last or first and I could have been right either way in my mind, because all I was doing was focusing on my lane and my execution of my swim. Um, there are some races where like, you definitely are aware of where other people are, you know, and like, it's going to come down to those hundreds or tens, like who wants to get their hand to the wall first. Um, but I don't know. I think you're, you're Luke, you're very right. Like finding something to focus on, to yeah. distract yourself from 
the physical like fatigue or pain you're experiencing when you race hard totally. is a really great mental tool to like mm. continue to have success. I think. Now we've talked to, or you've been mentioning your underwater kick and that's something after watching your videos is that obviously you have great underwater kick, but you also have great consistency with the underwater kick throughout a 200, right? You're yeah. coming up very far, especially compared to other competitors during some of those races. Can you tell us more about some, um, some practices or types of training that you do to work on maintaining that kick? Or is it as simple as, Hey, we're doing a, you know, a longer endurance backstroke set and I'm going to make sure I nail whatever 10, 12 kicks off each one of these turns. Yeah, I would say, um, I, I guess it is a combo of the two. We do some underwater specific work, but more generally, it is just me making a choice on the number of kicks I'm going to stick to in a practice and not like never faltering at that. Um, like as I, I definitely, uh, when I was in club, my club coach, um, made a recognition that like, I was very efficient underwater. And so he made it a point to be like, all right, this is the number of kicks we're going to do today in this set. And I want you to stick to it. And we're going to change, um, you know, systems. We're going to go like, an 80%, 90%, 100% type of effort. And you need to maintain that even when you get tired off of every single wall. And so like that started from the club level and then progressed to high school. And then obviously as I got stronger and more like efficient, just in general, as like a person, I got better and could get um, further underwater because um, I did kick to like 15 meters as a club swimmer and as a high school swimmer. But as I got through a race, I started to like, not be efficient enough to maintain that. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely think in college is when I kind of broke through, made the decision like, okay, I am strong enough. I'm going to challenge myself. And in practice, every time we do something that's, um, you know, a certain effort level, we use colors at Wisconsin. Everybody has a different way of like moving through their different energy systems. But um, if I'm doing white or pink or red or blue, there's a number of kicks I'm doing for each that's like assigned to each energy system. And I'm going to stick to that. And um, I think just the practice of doing that constantly every single day has made it like almost an automatic thing for me when I race. Like I'm so comfortable in oxygen debt that like, it, when I get tired, it's almost like what I fall back to. Like yeah. if I'm tired in a race, I'm like trying to kick further underwater um, just because I know I can. Um, and so, yeah, it's over time. I've each, each year I progressed in swimming. I tried to like add a number of kicks I could do. And as I got stronger and as I got older and got better, that just got easier for me. And so I push it all the way in kick sets and backstroke sets and freestyle butterfly um, backstroke and like freestyle and butterfly are a different number of kicks for me. Um, backstroke definitely comes a little bit more. I don't know if it's easier. Uh, it's just like, I have that down. So, so precisely to the 15 meter and fly and free are something I'm still improving upon a little bit. Um, just because I'm a little more comfortable on my back, but, uh, utilizing those kicks are super important for me. Um, mm -hmm. Always. You mentioned being comfortable with um, oxygen that um, is that something you feel like has just been slowly building up with training, like you said, since uh, being on a club level or something that you feel like, all right, this is maybe a skill that I was born with or or something that, like I said, that you feel like you're better even compared to other elite you know, swimmers. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I don't really know. I think that it's definitely something that like reflecting back on like me as a child as well. I was always the kid at the summer pool, like just underwater hanging out. So I'm not sure if it's something that I'm just like naturally comfortable with or became much more comfortable with over time. I think it's probably a combination of the, the two. I just have like a ridiculous like lung capacity, I, I think in general. And that obviously just built up as I practice it over time. Um, but since I know I have that, um, 
I might as well utilize it, you know? So uh, we definitely worked on it from club level to high school to college. And it's, it's constant for me. There's never like a practice where I'm doing something and not going as far underwater as I can. If I'm going fast, I need to practice doing that when it's really, really hard. And so um, it's a habit for me at this point. I've decided the only reason I wasn't a good backstroker is because I couldn't clog my nose. That's the only reason. Can you block your nose? I can. Yes. John, um, Brian? No, I've never been able to. That's what, that's what the nose clog is for. Proof. Yes. Um, I could naturally do it. So, like, I grew up not wearing a nose clip and backstroke. Um, didn't wear one all through high school. And then my first two years in college, my our head coach required our team to wear them. Um, so I had to get used to it and became very comfortable with it. And I still use it to this day, not just for backstroke, but for all strokes. Um, I think it's really helped me. Um, I think part of it is just the fact that you don't have to think about that, doing that when you're doing a flip turn and preparing for an underwater, it's just like automatically already been done for you by wearing a nose clip. Um, cheating? cheating. Yeah, are nose clips cheating? Uh, no. <laughs> I think because I, I mean, for me, I can say no because I could do it if I didn't have a nose clip. But I think for those who couldn't, um, gosh, I've never thought about a nose clip in that frame of reference before. Well, I think um, that way because I saw, I remember using it for the first time and I went, whoa, this is crazy because I can totally add two more kicks off each wall. Yeah. Uh, backstroke set for example and there's a performance advantage so uh, yeah the people who are choosing not to wear them are just missing out on a couple good underwater kicks i guess you know <laughs> um but it's definitely helped me like i was good at underwater kicking um before i ever used a nose clip but i feel like having used it it's only improved upon my ability to maintain it so um i definitely love a good nose clip can't lie Get some uh, shark skin nose clips going on for some even more speed benefits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so if there wasn't a 15 meter rule, would you go further off each wall? How much yeah. and where do you think the point of no return is? Is 15 the right amount so that you can get enough air to swim like a 200 backstroke, for example? Or would you go 20 if you could? I don't know if I'd go 20, but I think I may, I'd, I'd go past 15 probably. I mean, I mean, definitely off a start, I'd go past 15 um, because I feel like the number of kicks it takes me to get to 15 off of a start is like limiting my, my transition and power off that first 25. So for somebody like me, I for sure would. And weirdly enough, I feel like the two 25s I would for sure go past are the first and the last. Do you think we should just get rid of the 15 meter rule entirely? No, I wouldn't say that. I think it definitely is there for a reason. Um, you know, I went back and watched some of the like Olympic racing where they didn't have a 15 meter rule um, and people would kick to like 35 off the first wall. Like, um, I think there is an important balance between on top of the water and under the water. And I think by implementing the 15 meter rule, it allows there to be that balance. Um I mean, I selfishly would enjoy to not have to abide by that sometimes, but um, I don't know. I It's hard for me to say that, like, by eliminating that, I'd be any faster, though. You know, I think I'm not sure if underwater kicking by eliminating 15 meters would still result in the same efficiency in my swimming, if that makes sense. Um but I wouldn't be able to know that because, you know, it's not necessarily allowed. Well, we already called the fifth stroke. Why don't we just have an extra event where it's unlimited distance? Off the oh, I'm down for that. I'm down for that. Right? Let's, we know you're <laughs> up for more events. That's for sure. Yeah, keep all the other ones. But like, let's add one where you don't have to follow the rule. I'd be I'd be <laughs> into that. Yeah. Well, OK, so <clears throat> I want to know about actually, have you been paid by FINA? Currently? Yeah. Did they just give you the giant check and no, no follow-up it's, it's a prop check. And then they like go through all their process and then obviously distribute all the prize money. So, um, no, the prop check was not a real check. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I was trying to get somebody to try to do a mobile deposit right there with the big check. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was talking with some of the people from FINA. I'm like, do you think this would actually work in a bank if somebody tried? I was like, eh, I don't think so. Yeah. 
Well, part of the reason I bring it up is because, um, you know, you've gone through this World Cup series, but you're also really good in the ISL and got to experience that too. And, you know, the likelihood of ISL coming back is pretty slim at this point, especially because they can't pay their bills. Um, so what I'm curious about is someone who's found success in, in this, like, what do you think uh, is are great takeaways from how the World Cup worked? What can FINA do to bring into the World Cup that brings in some of the elements of the ISL maybe to really make it what everybody likes? Because it seems like most of the pro athletes are saying, well, you know, what's great about the ISL is the camaraderie you've got a team and there's like a sense of identity to that and i think you know uh, there's an opportunity to build fandom for uh th those like anybody watching to re like really get by and not just at the individual level but to support a team but uh it's also important for the athletes like what what other things what are the takeaway great takeaways from the world cup and what else would you do to create this like the best possible experience for everyone involved yeah. Um, I mean, I had an incredible experience with both World Cup and ISL. Um, I think you mentioned exactly what I think a lot of elite athletes enjoyed about ISL was this like team aspect to what we were doing that doesn't exist beyond maybe like national team level international travel trips that are even not quite the same thing. Um, you know, you when you go on like a team USA trip, for example, or you went and traveled with the Netherlands and you were on their national team to like an international competition. Um, it becomes like very individualized. You are there to uh, focus on what's necessary for you to be successful because there's all this high pressure and you're there to perform and you're representing your country and you get to share that with other people, but it's not quite this like team aspect that I think a lot of athletes who swam at the in the collegiate had a collegiate experience got to have. Um, and ISL was almost this like pro version of collegiate athletics. At least that's the vibes it gave to me and a lot of my other teammates. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is hard to find. Um, and it made it really fun and easy to like get up because you were doing it for like your team and you're, you had a, a team coach and you were all practicing together and we all got to like wear our team uniforms and like had team cheers and a box to all hang out and support one another. And, mm -hmm. um, I got to know a lot of my Cali Condors and also just ISL teammates, um, so much better than I ever would have in any other environment because it was this mixture of like high level swimming and, fun, relaxed atmosphere, um, which is very rare. Um, you know, like I mentioned that the world cups, it's quite similar because, um, you're not on a team necessarily, but, uh, it's still this more like relaxed, but high level racing, um, which I really enjoyed about ISL. So there's that parallel, which I liked. And I think, um, a lot of other athletes did as well. Um, I think the thing that FINA could maybe like take from ISL, if anything, would just be um, creating that sense of community a little broader than just like the the like star athletes that they kind of traveled together and had all these really fun experiences with. Because I was not a part of that, um, so I didn't get to do like the indie car racing or the curling or whatever they did. Those like fun FINA experiences they had with those athletes, which I know they like can't provide for everyone. But that type of community that they started to like instill within those athletes was really awesome. Um, I was lucky enough to like travel to all three stops as well, so kind of created that sense of community without having been a part of that like core group of athletes who like FINA brought along for all those meets. Um, but that is something that I think will keep people coming back to meets like that. Um, it's why a lot of athletes, despite some of the inconsistencies with ISL being, um, timely on things they had promised to athletes to do ISL, they came back regardless because of that community it created for, um, for them. And that type of format of racing is, uh, really hard to find. And, um, the production aspect also is like 
where else do you get that type of racing environment? Um, And FINA did do a really great job at the World Cups of, you know, they had a cool intro and smoke and lights and music and they made the walkout really interesting. Um, They didn't have as many like crazy rules as ISL did um, with all the like stealing of points or that kind of stuff. But um, I think making it more of like, something that the audience can also become invested in while creating a positive community and environment for the athletes performing. I think that's the perfect balance. Um, and you know, I know that ISL and FINA aren't friends, (laughs) but, um, you know, there's a lot that I think FINA saw that was successful with ISL as far as like production goes or how to run a meet or how to try and um, cultivate this community within the professional level of swimming, um, that can be successful for them. Um, and I'm bummed ISL won't be back probably in the future, just like how it's looking now, because I loved and enjoyed it. I wanted to continue to do that for as long as my body would have allowed me to do so. Um, some of the most fun racing and also just life experiences that I've had thus far in my life. So, um, I'm grateful for that, but I think the world cup is very reminiscent of what ISL was for me, which is why I think I enjoyed it, which was also in turn, why I think I had a lot of success because, um, people say like a happy swimmer is a fast swimmer and that's super cliche and like super cheesy, but it's super true. (laughs) Um, you know, like I was having so much fun at those meets. So much so that we would stand behind the blocks and like talk to one another when usually we would be like in race mode, focusing, not, you know, like I'm going to take her down. You know, everybody's in their own mindset wanting to win. I was like joking with Sydney Pickram, like right before the last 200 I am of the whole circuit. Um, like, Hey, we're, here we go. It's the last one, you know, like just give it all I got, like encouraging one another to have our own success and push each other to be our best. Like where else do you find that type of energy and environment? So um, I feel lucky to have been a part of it. I don't have necessarily like specific things that I think ISL or FINA, like FINA could take from ISL, but I just think, like I said, the production value of what they did to some extent is makes swimming really exciting to watch. Um, And I also think that the community that, ISL created for a lot of pros uh, is very unique and special. And if some organization can kind of take hold of that and use that moving forward, and if FINA can be that, that'd be great. You know, I'd continue to do the World Cups regardless, but I think it'd be cool for them to kind of make like, I don't know, teams or something that allows people to like buy into something a little bigger than just their own individual success. So. Would you go back if there was a new league that exactly mimicked the ISL, paid for your expenses, your flight, your accommodation, the same setup, but there was no prize money? Would you would you take part? You could expect the same camaraderie, fun, excitement. You know, huh. would you go back if there was no prize money? You think about meets that don't have prize money or have very low. Mary Nostrum, um, Olympics. You know, like like. Would you go back for that? Obviously, they had to have it to attract the people in the first place. But would you go? Yeah, I think I would. I mean, I essentially did ISL not, you know, not knowing whether or not I'd get the prize money anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I kind of had to do it for the experience regardless. And it was life changing for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I would I, you know, did it without the prize money and would do it again. So, um yeah, I think it's uh, for some athletes, it wouldn't be worth it for them. But for somebody like me, I think it is. I I find a lot of value in that. And, you know, if that's if it were between doing like an ISL event in that type of format or doing like a club meet or, you know, a pro series, those are great competitions and they give yeah. you racing experience. But it's just a different environment. And I would choose to do racing in that environment as many times as I had the option to. How much harder would the World Cup have been if it was long course and you still had to do the same event? Oh. <laughs> I, 
I was just talking about this. Um, I was doing a clinic this weekend and saw Giles Smith and he did a lot of world cups for a number of years. And many of them were long course. And he was just talking about, uh, he just did the 50 and the hundred fly at every stop he did because it was long course. And he knew like, I cannot do a full lineup because long course racing is much harder um, to recover from in a lot of cases than a short course meters racing environment. Um, and I agree with that. I think if I had to do a tuner backstroke long course and then a tuner I am long course 30 minutes later, I'd probably have a little bit of a harder time doing that than short meters. Um, but I'm glad it was short course. I hope it remains short course <laughs> for my sake, but. One of the things that was super evident is that unless you're Nick Fink and you dominate in one stroke across a wide range of distances for the entire World Cup, the people who were successful like yourself are doing doubles. And we all know that doing doubles long course is going to be way harder than doing the double short course. Yeah. But it's kind of challenging to see that it seems like to me that long course has always been on this pedestal. And yet all the excitement and fun and innovative things that we're talking about in swimming are happening short course. Like, do you think that that's a bad thing for the sport to focus on and put long course on this pedestal? Do you think that's kind of backwards thinking? What's your opinion? Um, well, I think a lot of the future of what swimming can become as far as like a, from a spectator perspective or like an audience perspective, I think a lot of that comes from the short pool. Um, I think most of those like fun formatted types of meets are done short course because of the amount of excitement that it can um, create. Um, it makes meets a little bit faster pace. Um, races happen so quickly. People can't like look away, which I think was a lot of the success with ISL and the world cups. Um, but I mean, I understand that long course is on a pedestal, you know, like the Olympics is in long course meters. So, um, the pinnacle of our sport is competed in a long pool. So, um, having a uh, focus on that is important. Um, and I think all athletes understand that know why. Um, but I do think that they're, it's hard to ignore the fact that I think a lot of the future of what swimming could become, uh, I think would come in short course meters, um, specifically, uh, mm -hmm. short course yards is obviously just for us Americans. <laughs> um, and I love that. And I think that a lot of athletes would enjoy swimming short course yards, but like realistically short course meters is, you know, the, the short pool that people would focus on when creating exciting events, when it comes to swimming, um, around the world, at least for international competition. But, um, I mean, I value both long course and short course. I've learned to love long course, which I could not have said maybe a few years ago. Um, and I understand the value of it because the things I want to achieve are also done in the long course meters pool as well. And I can have fun racing in a short course meters environment while also appreciating how important it is to be successful long course. So um, there's a balance that should exist between the two, I think. Do you know what this is? Um, no. It, I could guess, but I think I'm going to be wrong. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> um... I don't know. <laughs> cricket ball. Okay. 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 This is a cricket ball. And yeah. in cricket, traditionally, for 150 years, the game was five days long. Then about 30 years ago, they introduced the World Cup. And the World Cup became one day. Yeah. And the sport was dying and it blew up. And then that started to wane a bit. And about 10 years ago, they introduced the IPL, which is a professional league. That yeah. it's, the sport became two hours long. And it, show, and it created billions of dollars of revenue professional cricket has blown up they've changed everything about it yeah. um, and, and has also evolved a new kind of player a new kind of athletes you know who, who can adapt to it sounds familiar right to what we're doing in swimming so and there's still a place for that traditional five day but yeah. you think of golf even right golf you now have the shorter format to the game or you can have other leagues now it's the yeah. future so yeah it, but the secret came when notoriety went to the shorter form of the game when yeah. it was as as honorable to win a short course world championships as the long course world championships, for instance. 
Yeah. You know, we got shorts coming up. And there's always like an asterisk. Yeah, world champion, SCM. Like, wow. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, just a comment. Do you think if, you know, it came out that the Olympics for 2024 was going to be short course meters, do you think that would increase, decrease, or keep audience uh, viewership the same? Uh, I think it might increase only because of curiosity. Um, like obviously all the swimming fans would remain engaged in what's going on at the Olympics, regardless of the length of the pool. But, um, I think a lot of the time what happens at long course meters competitions, not just the Olympics, but in general, is you bring in a, a new audience member who sees it on TV or knows somebody who knows someone who's a swimmer or somehow just stumbles upon it, but then they're like watching, I don't know, they, they turn on when the mile swimming or something and no hate to the mile, no hate to the 800, the 400 IM, all the longer events, they're just as awesome, special and exciting to watch. But for someone who doesn't understand the sport of swimming, it's really hard to remain engaged when that's what they turn on to watch. So um, I think that because it would just make the racing format faster, it would create a little mm. more of that like retainment with engagement. Um, I think it could be beneficial. Um, I mean, obviously I don't foresee that ever happening, but, um, you know, I think it could be, uh, a way to retain, not even just like bring in a new audience necessarily, but like keep those audience members engaged in what they're, um, you know, consuming because of the faster pace of the format or the, uh, the ability to keep them engaged within a race. Cause like watching a 500 short course yards versus watching like a 400 long course meters. It's just like inherently a little more engaging, probably just because there's more happening, right? There's flip turns going on. It goes by a little bit faster. Um, there's a little more to like pay attention to that. Um, you might lose someone who doesn't know swimming and doesn't understand why watching like someone crush a 1500 is like so exciting to them um, because it is. Uh, but that's hard for other people who aren't involved in the sport of swimming in some way to understand if that makes sense. It will. It may redefine who we consider were the greatest swimmers of all time. Um, Chad Leclerc was telling Brian that you know he hopes by the time he retires, he's known as the best long course, short course swimmer of all time, right? And probably right now we say it's maybe Lochte, you know, at the time yeah. from men's side. But yeah, it might we might discover new stars and perhaps maybe have missed out on some stars who could have done well in long course pool. Anyway. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. like yeah. so many people who, yeah. if had been given an opportunity mm -hmm. like ISL or to do the World Cup circuits when they were in their prime, Dude. would have been mm -hmm. superstars yep. who ended up being done with the sport because mm -hmm. if they didn't make an Olympic team or they didn't make their national team or didn't make worlds the summer, they were finished with their college career. They could have had a professional career beyond just mm -hmm. being a very great college athlete until they were done because those opportunities did not exist before. So like I was very fortunate to have finished my mm -hmm. college career and been able to like, thrust my career into ISL immediately following yep. because without that opportunity, I one probably wouldn't have been able to support myself to continue swimming through trying to make the Olympics the summer of 2021, or I wouldn't have known what to do, what meets to go to, how to support myself, you know, like where to fall because without that, there is nothing except for like, swimming for another couple of years to make the Olympic team, because the only way there used to be to get notoriety or to make enough money to support yourself as a professional swimmer mm -hmm. was to be an Olympian or to make a world championship team. Um, and those are still just as valuable, but there were so few of them that continued to be able to have success because there weren't opportunities for them to continue their career in the in-between. Um, you know, I've been lucky to have some really like successful meets in these in-betweens to be able to help me try and be successful and have success for those big competitions like world selection meets or Olympic trials. Um, and without those in-betweens, I 
I don't know if I'd still be Never swimming. Yeah. Really challenging. So well, it's not it's retired. It's twenty four. I did. I mean, because that's yeah. really, and between yeah. cycles, right? In between the two cycles. Yes, because that's the hardest period of time. Um, a lot of people don't get funding from their federation, and if they aren't having success at meets, or there isn't prize money available at meets for them to make a living, or they're having to work a job and they can't balance mm -hmm. yeah. their swimming um, practice schedule and trying to be elite at that level to make an Olympic team while managing just like affording their life. Um, it's really hard. Um, I'm super fortunate to have been able to have success enough to feel comfortable to try and achieve what I'm still trying to do. And the sport is so. better for it. So we're happy to see you swim. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Bina, it's time for some rapid fire. Okay. What's the hardest race in swimming? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Rapid. Uh, probably 4 a.m. or two back. Olympic gold or world record? Oh my gosh. What? <laughs> uh, Olympic gold. Who's got higher earning potential? The World Cup winner or an Olympian with no medals? Um, maybe an Olympian. I don't know. <laughs> Movember mustaches, overrated or underrated? Uh, I'd say they're evenly rated. I wouldn't put them over or under. <laughs> if you were to pick one winter Olympic sport to do, uh, what would it be? What would you be best at? Um, speed skating, maybe? Ooh, me too. Do you pee in the pool? Do I pee in the pool? I've peed in the pool, yeah. When you were a kid, what was the best swim meat snack? Goldfish. Paired with a cool blue Gatorade. <sighs> cool blue. If you could create your own swimming event that doesn't exist today, what would the event be? Anything involving underwater kicking. Um, a 100 kick. With no 15 meter rule. <laughs> there it is. Vita, thanks so much for hanging out with us. It's super fun to watch you swim and you're a joy to talk to. It's fun. Thank you, guys. This is awesome. That's it for this episode of Social Kick. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you're enjoying Social Kick, tell your friends about it. And be sure to tell us what you liked by leaving a comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Social Kick. And you can find all of our content on our website,